Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with master storyteller and author Luis Alberto Urea. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming out tonight for the culminating event of this year's Big Read. I'm Heather Rutledge. I'm executive director at ArtReach St. Croix. The St. Croix Valley this year was one of 75 communities in the nation to receive an NEA Big Read grant. And in fact, it's the fourth time that we've received this grant. That means to date, we have brought in 59,000 federal dollars to the Valley, and we've leveraged that with local funding and with ArtReach staff to a total of $149,000. This builds on a decade of Valley Reads programming, which was a cooperative regional literary arts project. Stillwater-based ArtReach St. Croix works to raise the visibility of the visual, performing, and literary arts in the St. Croix Valley, from Taylor's Falls and St. Croix Falls to Hastings and Prescott. The Big Read in the St. Croix Valley is one way that ArtReach shines when it comes to multidisciplinary and valley-wide work. The Big Read is a program of National Endowment for the Arts in partnership with Arts Midwest, and connects readers to great literature and to each other in a big way. This year, for the first time, we were able to bring the author to our special part of the Far East Twin Cities Metro. (laughs) Uh, NEA Big Read in the St. Croix Valley includes readers and program partners from all 60 miles of the Scenic Riverway, shared by communities in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Core program partners include Valley Bookseller. Yay, Valley Bookseller. St. Croix Festival Theater, Stillwater Public Library, and yay, Stillwater Public Library. And more than 10 other library branches in our geography. Jessica Lopez Lyman is here with a mobile screen printing cart that you may have seen, uh, La Luchadora. And as our gift to you, there will be keepsake posters to take on your way home. There's also pre-signed books by Luis and Krista um, for sale by Valley Bookseller. And I wanna take an opportunity to thank everybody who gave a little or a lot uh, in support of this free program. Every extra dollar helps us support literary arts programs all over the St. Croix Valley. And there will be volunteers in the lobby with donation bins. As part of the NEA Big Read in the St. Croix Valley, ArtReach St. Croix is delighted to be here tonight hosting Luis Alberto Urea, 
author of Into the Beautiful North and other works, in conversation with Krista Tippett, host of Peabody award-winning radio broadcast and podcast On Being. This event is part of the Civil Conversations Project, as well as the culminating event in this year's Big Read. In the past month, volunteers have hosted Civil Conversations in Hastings, Stillwater, and Osceola. I really recommend that you check out the Better Conversations Starter Guide, which you can find online, and try it for yourself. Uh, um, this evening's conversation is being recorded, so please turn off your cell phones. Tonight, um, tonight's event is sponsored by Valley Bookseller, the Stillwater Library Foundation, the Stillwater Public Library, and Rivertown Inn. And I want to make a real thanks to all the Big Read volunteers and to the ArtReach staff and board. So, I have had the great pleasure of working with a bunch of staffers from On Being over the last six months. And so I want to give a shout out to Lily Percy. And, and Chris Hegel. Loren Doral. And Malka Fenevesi. Now, let's get to tonight's program. In 2014, President Obama awarded Krista Tippett the National Humanities Medal at the White House for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. On the air and in print, Ms. Ms. Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity and inviting people of every background to join her conversation about faith, ethics, and moral wisdom. Please join me in welcoming Krista Tippett and Luis Alberto Urea. Good evening. I'm so happy to be here to venture out of across the border from Minneapolis to St. Paul and all the way to Stillwater. Um, you know, people often don't know that On Being is produced here. Does everybody know that? I just, I'm happy to be getting out more in Minnesota these days to, to get that news out. Um, I'm delighted to be here tonight uh, with Luis Alberto Rea. He has published in nearly every genre. Um, he's written nonfiction, memoir, short stories, and poetry. His, his, he's written historical novels. His historical novel, The Hummingbird's Daughter, um, is based on the story of his father's Aunt Teresa. Is that correct? That's my, that book. My great, great, great aunt. aunt, yeah. Known as the Mexican Joan of Arc. <laughs> a Mexican mystic folk healer and revolutionary insurgent. And I have to say, you have an inordinate number of characters like that in your family. I do. <laughs> so we could go on. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, he's even written an award-winning mystery story. And so, not surprisingly, has been called um, a literary badass. 
<laughs> which we probably can't say on public radio. Oh, yeah. Um, I see in your person another quality that is not quite so sexy, but in our global moment is so urgent and I think so vividly desired and needed, and that is that you are a bridge person. Um, here's something uh, Luis Alberto Urea likes to say, there is no them, there is only us. <laughs> And the way that is explored and revealed through your work is not to reduce us to some kind of monolithic mass, it's not the melting pot us, but to grapple with the 21st century multiplicity of human identity. Um, I think to imagine making a new richness of us. This is in your body, and it's in your history. Um, you were born of a, a, a Mexican father, an American mother, but it's a lot more complicated even than that. <laughs> yes, it's wonderfully complicated. Wonder, you, were, you were Louis to her and Luis to your father. Or worse. Or worse. <laughs> pick, pick any exasperated Spanish word if you know them. That's what he would call <laughs> And, you know, you were actually born in Tijuana. And as, as I understand it, well, you know, it seems like the border ran through your parent, ran through your bloodline, it ran through your parents' marriage. Yes, it and did. And at one point it actually ran through your house. Yeah, the border, the border ran right down our sad little barrio apartment because their marriage came apart. It was doomed from the start in some ways. And uh, I always tell audiences, you know, the kitchen was the United States and the living room was Mexico. <laughs> and I was in the middle. And both of them were trying to win a culture war, I think. And mm -hmm. so to my mother, I was Lewis. I was Lewis Woodward, one of her relatives. And she watched my English like a fascist border guard, <laughs> you know, and my father. To make sure you were speaking it. One speaks proper English. One does not say, yeah. One says, yes, mother dear. And in the barrio, you can see me saying, yes, mother dear, and being promptly beaten up for it. Um, and my father was extremely chauvinistic. He loved Mexico, and everything Mexican was the best thing. And so he was uh, living in terror that I would skew more American than Mexican. So I was raised twice at the same time. Right. I was a Mexican boy and an American boy. So, so how would you how would you start to think about what what is the the spiritual imprint on you, or perhaps the spiritual work that that left in you for the rest of your life, straddling a border like that in your person mm. from the very beginning of your life? Uh, a, a couple of things. I was I don't know why, but I've always been God crazy. You've been kind of crazy? God crazy. God crazy, okay. I have, you know, I have been drawn toward whatever the cosmic mysteries are from boyhood on, to my father's chagrin. Even though he was Mexican, he was not pro-clerical in any way, and he didn't like church, and he didn't like religion. Um, Were they both Catholic, at least? No, she was Episcopalian. Oh, my. And he was... He was uh, 
a non-Catholic Catholic. My whole, the Mexican family, you could trace some of my odd theology probably just back to our house in Tijuana. I've, I've told this story before, but for example, people wonder why I look Irish if I'm born from Tijuana. It's not because of my mom, it's because of the Urrea family. Our grandmother was named Guadalupe Murray. <laughs> so my dad was kind of an Errol Flynn looking guy. He had red hair, bright blue eyes, rosy cheeks. But um, she was a lapsed, severely I would say lapsed Catholic, who wanted to engage in certain rituals as long as it didn't mean being religious or going to church. So she would do really weird things like send my cousin and me up the hill to the church to steal holy water. <laughs> That's terrible. I didn't know it was terrible. <laughs> that could have given you nightmares. It no, could have scarred you. No, because I, th I was already smart. I was the lookout and let my bad boy cousin, the, the template for Atomico in the book, if you're reading it, now you know, uh, I let him steal it. I would just make sure the nuns weren't coming. And then we'd run back and take the bottle of aspirin full of holy water to my grandma. And then she'd spritz the house with it, you know. <laughs> okay. But you still were God crazy after that? Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to be a priest. I did. I wanted to be a priest. Um, and I, you know, we, we left Tijuana when I was quite young. Um, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis. People were dying, neighbors were dying. I was dying, I had tuberculosis. And uh, so we moved to San Diego, but you know, we were in dire financial straits and my father had a green card. Um, and we lived in, in a barrio near the border, a little sad apartment, not quite housing projects, but quite similar, big block of apartments. And I would go back and forth to Tijuana, but I went to Catholic school. Yeah. I was serious about being a priest. My father hated the idea. Um, and you, you must understand, I was, you know, second, third, fourth grade wanting to be a priest. And he would tell me, if you are a priest, it means you don't like women. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is that? That's fine. What are you talking about? I like the nuns. They're cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this really remarkable thing happened because this, I don't know why I loved the concept of God so much, perhaps that I, I even then needed some kind of transcendence, you know, some kind of hope because things were a bit rough. Um, and honestly, back in those days, I'll reveal myself a little bit here, but back in those days in the early 60s when I was there, you know, it was a different Catholic church than now, and there was a lot of grimness. Uh, there were certainly no folk masses, and it wasn't even in English yet when I was a kid. And the nuns would terrorize us with these amazing stories, you know. They'd say, well, what are you going to do when the communists take over the country? And we'd be like, we're going to stand up for Jesus. She'd say, are you? Are you really? So when they come to torture you, what are you going to do? <laughs> We're going to not renounce Jesus. And she'd say, when they're tearing flesh off your back with hooks, then, then, will you stand for Jesus? And we're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And in the midst of that, a Franciscan friar came to my school, full robes. Yeah. And he was laughing. Yeah. And he was playing with the kids. And I think that was the moment when I thought, oh, that's what Jesus is about. That guy. Right? And so it was an instant in some way cutting of the cord of all the traditional stuff mm. and le leaping into some, you know, childish mysticism. But I've always had that moment in my heart of seeing that guy and his laughter. And I thought, oh, that's what I want God to be. Right? Yeah. And so God has always felt like my companion in everything. And I you know, you've read the books. I mean, they're full of naughty bits and bad language and bad behavior, but I think you are trying to portray us, the human family, warts right. and all. Right. But um, critics often identify me as this political writer, and I say, no, I, I'm more interested in the soul's journey. Yeah. First, you have to admit, yes, we have a soul. A lot of people don't want to go there, but even my atheist friends read me because I mean, it's funny. I think funny. the word soul is kind of coming back to it. It is coming back. People are getting, well, it's like, I think people are realizing we can't really do without it. So we have to figure out what we mean when we say it in this world. Right. And, you know, for, you brought up Hummingbird's Daughter. Just imagine 20 years studying with shamans and medicine people to write that book. So I've become... You know, my, I, I used to work with Baptist missionaries. They're not sure what kind of beast I am now. They don't know if I'm in league with Satan or not because I've got a very strange view. But I, I, I find the sacred in almost everything. Uh, so, you know. I, I think that's um, not unconnected to something... Ursula Le Guin said to you, <laughs> okay. um, who was a teacher to you and... She was my discoverer. Your discoverer. She started my career. Yeah. She, you, you, you report, this was something she, she said, um, I believe in a class. We writers are the raw nerve of the universe. Our job is to go out and feel things for people, then to come back and tell them how it feels to be alive because they are numb, because we have forgotten. And I feel like that, you know, you go out to feel things about the boundaries between humans and the borders we, we build between ourselves, specifically the U.S.-Mexican border. And, and, and the back and the forth of it really has been there all the way through your life as well as your writing. Um, so yeah, as you said, you moved to the U, you, you were born in Tijuana, you moved to the U.S. at a young age. You were finishing college on this side of, of the border. And then in the year of your graduation, when your father was on a trip on the other side of the border, he was killed. Um, do you want to, you know, just, yeah, do you want to say anything about that? I mean, that's yeah, obviously yeah. The, terrible. The, the journey was, was really interesting for me because I, I thought... I was just like everybody else, just like I think you're all just like me. So when I meet you, I think, oh yeah, you've got a Mexican grandma. You all speak Spanish. You used to eat peanut butter on a hot corn tortilla, just like me, and you didn't. But in some ways, we all are the same because we all have family and, and history and memories and so forth. And um, 
so I would spend my boyhood going back and forth across the border. And at the end of fourth grade, there was an outbreak of street violence. Somebody wanted to hurt me in particular. And my parents thought, we're going to get out of here and move to my mom's people, go up to a white neighborhood, an Anglo neighborhood. And to my mother's undying, I think, shock and chagrin, we were seen as the invading Mexican family in this neighborhood. And she was like, oh, dear boy, I'm from New York City. <laughs> you know, my family are from Virginia. Right. But that didn't, she was tainted by our existence, which was shocking to all of us. And I had learned Spanish before I learned English, so I had an accent. And it was at that point when people started calling me racial names, which was a great shock. So that transformation hit hard and fast. I went to college. I was the first to go to college in my family because my parents pushed me. And uh, thank goodness for that. And in my senior year, um, being my father's first child, he had, I had other, you know, my dad was a traditional Mexican man, you know, he had families. Um, but I was the only one in this family. And since I was the first, he wanted to get me a graduation gift. And so he drove into his hometown, which is the model for Tres Camarones. It's a real town called Rosario, Sinaloa. Um, 27 hours. And he retrieved money for me as a graduation gift. And he drove back 27 hours and was caught by bad Mexican cops and he died and um, it was not it was not good and um, then they wouldn't let me bury him they made me buy him I was 20 years old not ready so I bought my dad and uh, that that ended everything for us we were completely destitute my brothers and I took up a collection to bury him we buried him in an unmarked grave in Tijuana um, but then, you know, in steps Le Guin, who I had written a story about that, and she took me in when she read it, and she published it. It was my first sale. So in some ways, that sacrifice launched everything that's meaningful. Well, it also seems to have led you to the, the person. So, so, I mean, it, it could be surprising to someone that, that what you did next at 20 after that had happened to you is that you actually went back to Mexico. And, I did. Uh, and you sometimes get described, uh, it's, uh, it gets described as relief work, but I think it's, it was more missionary work, right? I was preaching the gospel. <laughs> and Vaughn. Pastor was, Vaughn. Pastor Vaughn, who you, who you also intriguingly describe as a Zen Baptist. Yeah, not a Zen Buddhist, a Zen Baptist. <laughs> Pastor Vaughn, he was a he was tremendous. I, yeah, I, after, after the, the events with my dad, I was looking for some meaning in the world. Um, I had strayed far from my religious side at that time. I had been a, you know, like many self-important 13-year-olds, I was too intellectual, so I was a 13-year-old atheist for a while. I had all the answers, as 13, 14-year-olds do. Um, and I was seeking again, and my father's death was so empty and awful and horrible. And I will admit that before I went to serve God, I was a movie extra. 
Oh, right. Yeah, you did. Ah, I extraed in the Chuck Norris movie, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was a cartoonist for a while that ended up in some nudie mags. I'm not proud of that, but I was trying to, you know, express something. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, friends of mine urged me to go meet Pastor Vaughn. He was quite well known in San Diego. Um, he was a superstar preacher and had a very deep voice, a resonant voice, and a big black mustache. And uh, they said, you know, he goes to Tijuana to feed the poor. And I was like, Psh, some Baptist gringo is not going to teach me, but I am Tijuana, right, man. Right. I, am the, I am the terror of Tijuana. <laughs> and, of course, I went, and he immediately took me to things I had never seen in my life. Uh, but one of the things, the first night we went, because I, I became his translator, so I translated every one of his Bible studies for many years, mm. all mm. of his preaching. Mm. But I also had to negotiate communication with everybody, and that meant seeing awful things. And it really helped me as a writer because I understood that I had the gift of speaking to people, but I had to exercise the discipline of listening to people because if I wasn't listening, I would tell someone the wrong thing. And I had to do medical exams with American doctors. I had to, you know, see injured and wounded people. I had to see people buried and so forth. So those things ignited in me the desire to, to bear witness. Yes. And, and it sounds like you pretty, or, or I don't know, you had a clarity at some point that bearing witness for you meant writing, meant writing about well, that's all I could Please. do. I, I was a yeah. writer. I was a writer. I had started writing probably in junior high. I got really serious in high school. I was that guy in high school with a notebook. Yeah. Always. Always. I was never without my notebooks. And um, I will confess, many of those were because I was trying to write great love poems to my girlfriend. But I didn't know. You so know, you'd it, figured out by then what girls were for. Well... Sorry, that's not sound right. Why you should care about girls. Well, <laughs> well I, I, we, will, we will edit that out. I, no, no, you can keep that in. <laughs> they can't see me blushing on the radio. I know, yeah, you can see me. Um, there's, a, like, there's a story that you tell about a particular man who said he was born in a garbage dump. Spent oh, my, my entire life picking trash. Why, Krista, you went in deep, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I haven't told that in a long time. Yeah. Um, we would rove all over Baja California, northern Baja California, into the hills, and there are a lot of orphanages and, and all kinds of interesting places in the backcountry. And there was a place south of the town of Tecate, where Tecate beer comes from, if you're beer drinkers. And it was called La Ladriera, which means the brickyard, and it was a place basically of adobe mud. And people had gone there, many of them garbage pickers, and they call them paracaidistas in Mexico, parachuters, because they go squat on land. And if they can tame that land, it's like homesteaders, the government sooner or later will cave and let them keep their land. And they went there to make bricks. And we were driving probably 50, 60 miles from them, and we had CB radios, and someone called Vaughn and said, Vaughn, can you get over to Ladriera? There's an injured girl over there. And he said, 
oh, really? Yeah, what would happen? She got burned. So we said, yeah, we're on our way. And what they do is they, they, they make, they have kilns and they pump fuel into them and light it. And she was in a nightgown and she got ignited. 10-year-old, 11-year-old girl. And uh, so we pulled up and of course, Lois, let's go. You know, it's like, no, please, not again. And we went and she was in a little hut too short to stand up in. So we, and it was completely dark. We went in, bent over, and she was standing naked, burned. She couldn't put her arms down like this, shaking. And, um, you know, we, we immediately called these doctors with airplanes that come and save her. Um, so the town loved Vaughn, and they, the women in town asked him to build a church for them. And so we were there all the time. And I was keeping my journal notes, and this gentleman was walking by, and I was writing in my notebook, and he was looking at me. He was completely covered in, in uh, adobe, and he was singed and black with cinders, and he had a handkerchief tied on his head and a stick. And he came over, and he said, Oh, yeah, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing in my journal. He said, Huh, that's good. What's a journal? I said, it's like a diary. Oh, yeah? What's a diary? I said, look, it's a blank book, and you write stuff. And he said, write what? And I said, what I see, what I'm doing, keeping a record. And he said, you're writing about this place? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're writing about these people? I said, yeah. And he said, you're writing about me? And I said, probably will. And he looked at me. I've described it elsewhere as uh, uh, that moment when you're around somebody and you don't know if they're going to hug you or hit you. Perhaps if you're out drinking or something, you know, and that person smiles a little and leans back. And I thought, uh-oh, what's... And he came back and he said that, what you said. He said, you know, that's good. That's good. Write it down. Write about me. He said, because I was born in the trash. I spent my life picking trash. When I die, they're going to bury me in the trash. He said, you tell them I was here. I was like, wow, yes. You know, callow youth, I didn't quite understand, I don't think, the depth of what he had said to me. Yeah. But it resonated forever. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think it's important also right here to point out that you that you write about the fullness of what it is to be Mexican. Well, yeah, we right? rule. And it's not all poverty, and it's also, as you say, it's not like everybody in Mexico is dying to get to the U.S., which is a narrative that's very strong at the moment. So, 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 so you, you, you draw out this, these layers of complexity, which also includes beauty and whimsy and all the things that happen in life. And I mean, one of the things you, you write about very convincingly, you don't just write about it, you live it convincingly. You say Mexico is the true melting pot. Like, you live and breathe. You are, you are the living, breathing embodiment of Yeah, it. look at us. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, you know, we have Apaches in our family, Yaqui, indigenous people. Of course, the Murrays, you know. We have Chinese. Huh? That's where you and I, our, our lines cross. Oh, really? Well, oh, yeah. we're cousins. We're cousins, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, and, and Urea is not a Mexican name, it's Basque. So my grandfather was Basque, and in Basque it means golden man, man of gold. So in other words, Bubba looking, once again. 
Um, and then we have like we have Chinese Urreas, the Wang family, Wang Urreas. And uh, recently I met a bunch of Samoans, so I thought, ah, it's my Samoan cousin. How cool is that? <laughs> and what you go, it goes all the way back to what the Visigoth invaders of Iberia. Well, you know, I when I was researching Hummingbird's daughter, I was my family has always been really thrilled that in Don Quixote. Don Quixote mentioned the Urrea family. And he says, you know, I am not a powerful man like the Urreas of Galicia. And so we've been going out to lunch on that for about 500 years. <laughs> and I, I started looking it up, and there was a, a really old, um, at Widener Library at Harvard, there was a really old uh, English annotated edition when I was going into the the annotations about the Urrea name, the Urrea family, they traced it back and they said that very interestingly, the Urrea blondness seems to be due to Visigoths who invaded Spain and uh, essentially made unwelcome uh, genetic deposits. <laughs> and so when I started researching the region my family's from. Originally, it's a village named Urrea, and it was under the Visigoth king named Urias, spelled almost exactly the same. So when I started going through their notes about the Visigoth ancientness of, of the family, I thought that was kind of cool. And the reason I started making a little bit of usage of that was because there was a time when white supremacists were dogging me and threatening me and offering to kill me and my family and so forth. So I could write them back and say, I don't know what you're saying, man. I'm a Visigoth. I'm the only Aryan here yeah, in this conversation. Right, right. They couldn't take it. It'd make them furious, but they wouldn't know what to do. You do. Um, you, have such a, you, you point out some interesting things about um, Language, right, and all the how how our vocabulary is full of borrowed oh, yeah. words. I think that's a, I think that's important and interesting, also, because um, the insistence that Spanish-speaking Americans have on speaking Spanish feels like something new. I think in this melting melting pot culture, I'm not sure that's right. Like, I wonder if we could go back a hundred years, if we would find that Germans were still speaking German and whatever, right? But yeah, all you have to do is go into the North End, you know, in Boston, and people yeah. are speaking Italian amongst your folks. You do, yeah, right. So, but you point out all these words, and I think it seems like you've had a lot of fun, kind of. Oh, I was having a field day. All the words borrowed from Spanish, like, well, coyote, marijuana, there's a good one. Who's Stampede. gal? Hmm? Who's gal? Calaboose. Key, as in Florida Keys, Florida. Um, I mean, they're, you know, bonanza, bronco, all these words, beef, jer beef jerky, vanilla, chocolate. Rodeo. Rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's something, where do you say? Um, yeah, you also say English. It's made up of all these untidy words, man. Have you noticed? Native American, skunk, German, waltz, Danish, twerp, Latin, adolescent, Scottish, feckless, on and on. It's a glorious wreck, a good old Viking word, that. 
glorious, I say, in all its shambling, mutable beauty, people daily speak a quilt work of words, and continents, and nations, and tribes, and even enemies dance all over your mouth when you speak. <laughs> Why, thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's true. I don't quite comprehend the need for insult, you know, the need for paranoia and aggression and uh, the, this strange... I mean, I understand. I, I'm, I'm hearing all this new scientific talk explaining how, of course, the mind is tribal and we we bound with our tribes and we're fearful of the of the stranger and so forth. But you know, there's a particular tide of it in the United States, mm -hmm. and it's been here for an awfully long time, and. I think I got a bit politicized when people started, well, I did when I was a kid, when they started calling me greaser, wetback, taco bender, beaner, all this stuff, you know, um, which was a shock to me. and started telling me that everything bad was Mexican, everything filthy, because honestly, until fifth grade, everyone I revered was Mexican. And all of a sudden in fifth grade, you're told they're all scum, invaders. I thought, what? It's no accident to me that in fifth grade I lost my Mexican accent and started speaking like my mother. Yeah. I didn't mean to, but I wasn't, you know, I was, I was in full-on survival mode because I didn't understand what had just happened. And I think that bafflement sticks with me to this day, and I don't understand. You know, as a teacher, I teach in Chicago, and I watch students fear each other. I come into a class and African-American students are on one side and white students are on the other side. Or I come into a class and there'll be two young ladies with a hijab mm -hmm. and no one will sit near them. They, mm -hmm. There's an empty arc of seats around them. And so I'm, I'm always trying to find ways to stop these things because it only takes this much, I think, for us to see each other, know each other, and then love each other. And that's what's so dangerous. That's very dangerous. So one of my writing rules with my students, which I use all the time, and it's why the books are so comedic in places, is I always tell the students that laughter is the virus that infects you with humanity. And if you sit with somebody and laugh, not at them, but laugh with them wholeheartedly, how in the world can you get up from that table and say, Psh, those people, you can't. And if you've laughed with them, you're going to cry with them too. You know, that laughter is a very dangerous hmm. portal for humanity. And with the, with the young ladies in the hijabs, and they're always my best students. They're brilliant young women. So they're smart. They know exactly what I'm doing. We get to class, and I begin class every morning saying, assalamu alaikum to them, and they're like, I like my salam. <laughs> and then I ask him, how's your dad? Oh, God, he is so funny. You wouldn't believe what my dad just did. And other students are thinking her dad is some horrible woman-hating monster, right? Mm -hmm. And they start looking at him. Mm -hmm. Or you say, did you see that new Avengers movie? Oh, Loki's so hot. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or how's your boyfriend? Just human convo. Yeah. And then sooner or later, students start sitting and, you know, 
It's just a question of communication. I think that communication is dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when dictators happen, they go after poets and writers very fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we are learning these things about our brain and how they really are trying to help us, right? They're trying to help us because the complexity of reality is overwhelming. Yes, yeah. Right, so we, so we you know, what is it? We interviewed um, Mazarin Banaji, who helped create the, the field of implicit bias, you know? And she says the mind is a different seeking machine. Yeah. But it's also how it's creating order for us and making reality feel manageable. And I, but I, yeah, but I, but it's not, it doesn't have to become hardened and hostile, right? And then, <clears throat> right? I also feel like the, these things we're learning about ourselves, I mean, this is very new, very new knowledge, really, it will be a form of power. Um, just like those tools, those humanizing tools are forms of power. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, maybe a redistribution of power. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a more collaborative power, communal power, you know? I mean, uh, my daughter, for whatever reason, my youngest daughter, Chayo, she just thinks somewhere deep in her soul she's a Norse woman. She's a Viking. And I've had to listen to years now. I'm, you know, I know everything about Odin. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But what's really cool is that you know, she has understood things outside of the myth we have of the rampaging maniac, Viking, berserker, right. killing everybody. And now she sees all this stuff and she tells me, you know, Vikings were feminists, dead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as part of my curse now that she tells me things like, yeah, you men, gotta go. That's what girls are for, too. <laughs> That's what daughters are for. All men have to go to an island. Yeah, yeah. But, and so, so what we do with borders and, and walls, right, that's where this hardens. Yes, it does. And you, um, you've written recently about going to visit the Ote Mesa border crossing to see the wall <laughs> in progress. And I love, you know, one thing that you do is you just plant that place in its history, right, of 12,000 years of being inhabited by the Kumeyaay. Kumeyaay Indians. That also softens something, seeing the fault, seeing that sweep of time and... Yeah, you know, you... I, I, I've, I've had this partially because of Tummingbird's daughter, you know, and dealing with Yaki people and my aunt and all that. But, uh, you know, it's been, it's been on my mind for many years. And <clears throat> when the immigration issue caught up with me after a couple of books and I was talking about it, um, you know, and people would be really offended and upset with me. And I would always get the same response, you know, yeah, my family, sure they were immigrants, but we did it legally, unlike you guys. We had papers. And so I started being a jerk and saying, who checked them, Geronimo? <laughs> Crazy horse stamped the papers? 
Um, so I, it's it's ridiculous and and in some ways a folly to say, can't we all just get along? Yeah. But it it is the truest thing that I don't understand why we can't. And part of it, I have to say, just so you know, in my new novel, for the first time, I'm feeling very mature right now because for the first time in my writing career, I've made the hero a Republican. Just to show everybody that I can, you know. Like your mother. I, my mom was, like my mother. mom was a serious yeah. Republican. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted people to know, yeah, hey, you know. Um, and I was telling everybody, you're Richard Painter here. I said, it's going to be the first, if he runs for president, it'll be my first Republican vote. And now he's come over to the Democratic Party. I don't know. I wanted to show people I'd grown up. But if we can talk to each other again, I feel like our family is scattering worse and worse. And we need to be able to talk with each other. We need to be able to, to, to enjoy each other's point of view, even if we don't agree with it. And, uh, you know, I think I am certainly in the world of so much grievance that I, I have Facebook friends who have the Make America Great Again hat. They love Mr. Trump. And when they say something, people attack them. How dare you say that to Luis? And I said, wait, wait, don't you have your own page? Because if I didn't like those guys, I would right. unfriend them. They're my friends. And we have fun sometimes attacking each other. Just, you know, because we can laugh, I hope. We can talk, I hope. And when we can't, we are in serious, serious trouble. And we've seen what the world is like over and over again when you must be silent. It's not good. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like one thing you do, um, as much in your, in your fiction as in your nonfiction, and certainly in Into the Beautiful North, but is, is like you work with the idea of a border or a wall, not as a, not in fact as a hard and fast thing, as a liminal space, as a it liminal is, zone. It is a liminal space. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But that is a, you know, just to think about it that way opens up a lot of imagine, imagination. And I, I think liminal space is where all writers go. Jane Hirschfield has some beautiful stuff about being in liminal space, you know, that, 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 that place of, of crossing, that place of, of pressure of two, two things meeting, that's a, that's a rich, I mean, that's where the plankton wells up, you know, and the currents meet. Yeah. And you can choose to see it in different ways. Right. And... Um, you know, either the border is a hideous, festering scar of oppression, horror, and violence, or it's a fraternal space where two cultures meet and can exchange. Uh -huh. And honestly, particularly before the narco wars, there was a, you know, and there still are bastions of friendship along the border. And all you have to do is go to places near Nogales or Yuma where kids on the Mexican side and kids on the American side play volleyball over the wall with each other. Yeah, and see, we don't hear these stories. No, you don't. And um, I recently did a ballet. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I, I read poems while they danced. I'm imagining it. No. Me in a tutu. Nah. <laughs> 
Yeah, but uh, uh, I, I, I narrated this, this ballet. It was the 100th anniversary of a Stravinsky piece, um, which included a Faustian journey through a wasteland where, where the man trying to get to safety has to make a deal with the devil, essentially. And the, the composer slash conductor who was reviving the, uh, the, the ballet thought that my work was appropriate for this era. That was, you know, 100 years ago. This time it's people dying in the desert making that terrible deal to survive. Mm -hmm. um, but what he did, his other piece, his name is Stephen Schick. Oh, yes. He's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I keep saying this guy's... So he did a concert on the land where the wall is being yes, built, Yes, he did. Right? Yeah, yeah. He, he went three miles down the road, the dirt road, and he set up American musicians on one side of the wall and Mexican musicians on the other side of the wall. They couldn't see each other. Mm -hmm. But the, he conducted and the Mexicans could watch the video of him conducting. And each side had 300 people watching. And they did a concerto together to prove that those walls, you can't stop art, you can't stop human touch or communication. It flew over the wall. And he, he also spent some time in Berlin, right? With and that was a wall I, with, with which I had some intimacy. And I mean, I remember still when Michael Jackson came and did a concert right on the western side oh, of the wall, gosh. just as things were falling apart. But the concert goers gathered right on the eastern side. It was exactly that. I mean, that couldn't... But you, you ask... And I, you know, I, I've act, I'm pretty fascinated with wall. Like I've also, have you been to the wall in Belfast? No. Yeah. Let's Which, go. Yeah. Well, see, that one is interesting too because, because that one is almost just like a safety blanket right now. Like it's still there, even though it's no longer true that you will almost certainly be killed if you're the wrong person going into the wrong neighborhood right. across the wall. Um, but one thing you point out is. So in Berlin, on the western side, the wall was painted and raucous and alive and rebellious. On the western side, where people were free. Um, in Mexico, what do you say? In Mexico, it's the it's the Mexican side. It's the reverse. The it's the reverse side. That's well, it was I. You know, thank God for Stephen Schick. I stole it when he was telling me it, because it was the perfect wrap-up for that piece for the Times, that when he went across the, the other side, he said, you know, the Mexican side, the entire fence is an art gallery yeah. covered with paintings, sculptures, graffiti. There are ice cream men and taco stands, and there are mariachis, and there are lovers, and there are people dancing. The American side, steel, trucks, dogs, Helicopters, no, guns. No art, no graffiti. No nothing. Yeah. yeah. And he said, I suddenly realized that that was the Soviet side in Berlin. Yeah, it was. And I think, I think yeah. And I think you said, who was free? Who was free? And who yeah, was yeah. What, what exactly is that wall for then? Yeah. Hmm. And so, I mean, I just want to, I want to read something that you wrote about. Um, here's another thing you said about it. border. Border is 
is a is an imposed metaphor on a family. You said um, the border. You were talking about specifically that region. The border remains a fluid, mutating, stubbornly troubling, enthusiastically lethal region. Perhaps it's not a region at all. Maybe it's just an idea nobody can agree on, a conversation that never ends even when it becomes an argument and all participants kick over the table and spill their drinks and stomp out of the room. You say, I was born there. I was born there. And I, I do think that it's a convo that is alien. You know, I think one of the things that people are amazed by, because and I keep saying it, I've been saying it, my first book came out 25 years ago. So I've been a little frustrated because I've been saying the same darn thing for 25 years. But now I guess, it, it got current somehow, but it always surprises people who don't know a lot about the border up here, north of the border. Even if you go to Phoenix, regardless of what politicians tell you, people in Phoenix aren't really clear on what the border is. It's not very far away, but it's already alien. Well, people in Mexico are the same way. They don't, you know, it's not like people wake up every day and say, ah, oh, the border. Let's go. They don't. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, it's just the direst need that brings you to it. Um, and it's, it's a different world. And an example of that was um, I got to go to Mexico City in the late 90s, and I was interviewed by La Jornada, a great Mexican newspaper, and they were asking me about myself. And I thought, like you said, you know, the border ran down your kitchen. I thought, I'm going to get them now. And I said, you know... In a certain way, the border fence goes right down the middle of my heart. Yeah. My heart is bisected by barbed wire. And the reporter said, that's great, that's great. <laughs> Mexico City, when the article came out, it said, if you cut his chest open with a knife, <laughs> there's a border patrol truck idling in his heart. I was like... I was truly lost in translation. <laughs> yeah. I think something, when did you write The Devil's Highway? When was that? Well, I started working on it in 2001. They, they died in May and I started working in August, but it came out in 2004. I mean, so that is a story, because to me also, I see that you, as much as you've been thinking about this, not just for 25 years, but since 1955, mm -hmm. um, you, uh, you've also had a journey in just going farther and farther into the layers of complexity. And, and one of the things that struck me about this, I mean, this, this book is, and this, I mean, this is really as much reportage, I think, as it's narrative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And it's about a terrible story of 26 Mexican men you know, who set out across this desert known as the Devil's Highway and heading for Arizona, heading hopefully for work, and 12 of them made it and 14 were just burned to death under that sun. And one of the things you've said is that when you set out to write it, you, you were just, where was it? You said you were, you were tired of, um, can't think. You were tired of people just demonizing, not, not seeing these people as humans. One of the interesting things that happens, oh yeah, that you were sick of the toxic reduction of these people. But one of the things that you also ended up seeing is the humanity of the border patrol. 
I didn't mean to. You didn't mean to. But that's a huge, huge piece of the story, and it's in Agent Arnie Davis in Into the Beautiful North, yes. right? Like, that, that kind of person is real. This, that's a very affecting piece of this Well, thank you. It was, it was a big shock to me. I went in as, frankly, a really bad writer. I thought I had it all. I thought, I am, you know, Mr. Witness, Mr. Enlightened Progressive, and uh, I thought, I'm going to witness everybody except those jerks over there in the Border Patrol. I'm going to burn those guys, because I just believed they were bad guys. And they knew it. They knew it before I walked in the door, and they made my life quite difficult. They engaged in enthusiastic ritual hazing. Um, and I, I didn't know what was going on. I realize now, A, it was really amusing to them, but B, they wanted to see what kind of person I was. And the supervisory agent of Welton Station, Kenny Smith, a lovely man, a 30-year veteran of the Border Patrol, while they were basically eating me alive, tearing you know my sinews off my bones, he came out and he said, what's going on? And I said, this idiot's writing this book about the... And he just looked at me and it was what I call grace. I don't know what else to call it, but this moment came when his eyes focused and he looked at me and he said, I sent out the rescue. I sent out that big bonsai run. And at that moment, without knowing it, my life changed. And, you know, he, he took me in and he began training me. And in some weird way, it was an echo of Hummingbird's daughter and that medicine people were showing me their things. And he took me out and showed me what it means to track people and what it means, how to, how to know what time of the morning somebody walked by. It was incredible. I realized this guy had a PhD in dirt, I say in the book, because he could read a book, uh, a, a piece of dirt, like we read a poem in a lit class. Then hmm. he was saying things that were blowing my mind. And there came this moment, the transformational moment for me was standing on the Devil's Highway with him. And there's nothing there. There's no, there's no fence. There's no barbed wire. It's just desert as far as you can see. And there's a sign with some bullet holes in it that says, you know, if you come in the United States, we'll really be depressed. That's about it. <laughs> and I'm standing there with him. And he says to me, and mind you, I still think they're evil. He says, I know what you think of me. And I remember looking, because he's got his 40 caliber Glock on his belt, and I thought, oh, man. And he said, you think I'm a jackbooted thug? And I was busted. I wasn't going to say, well, yes, I do. I, I just stood there. And he said, I am your jackbooted thug in shining armor. And he started talking about his life. And he told me all this amazing stuff that I couldn't have imagined in 100 years, you know, that how agents park they live 70 miles, 50 miles away from any station because it takes that long to get into the game and change the human being you were when you woke up to the human being mm -hmm. that has to go out mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And he said, and you got to drive 70 miles home because you got to go home and bounce your child on your knee. And he said to me at one point, it's a white cowboy, you know, he says, my daddy was a rancher. 
I'm a rancher. You know what I do all day? I chase ranchers around this. He said, I know they're my own people. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, and he, it just, he said, my job is to save innocent civilians dying a terrible death. My job is also to arrest those same civilians. Right, the, the both the both the parts person. of that equation that you didn't know. I mean, you once you say, you talk about how there's, um, you know, in this swirl of things that get these accusations that are made and assumptions that are made that there's the criticism that American taxpayers are paying for comfort stations and expensive light towers. <laughs> and then yeah. you said wrong. In fact, the towers are built, raised, maintained, and paid for out of pocket by those bleeding heart liberals, the border patrol <laughs> agents themselves. They, I mean, okay, they're cops. Yeah. So they're not stupid, they're sly. So they, they designed life-saving towers with shiny mirrors that can be seen from many, many miles away. And they're solar powered. They have a call button and they have a sign that says, you will die. You will not make it to the freeway. And if you're in distress, push this button. We will be here before a half hour and save you. And, you know, being cops, they put them in the places where the most people walked. Yeah, it gave them more arrests, but yeah, it gave them access to save people. And that was designed and built in garages by Border Patrol agents. They went out and put them up themselves, and they paid for them. Mm -hmm. You know, those were little things. And when he was telling me all this stuff, I like to tell this story, but all my alarms went off. All my Chicano, border, Mexican, liberal, may not love border patrol, you know? It was like the robot in Lost in Space, Danger, Will Robinson, may not love border patrol, and I couldn't help myself. And he, he told me these things about being a dad and being a husband and dead people he had seen and all this stuff, and I turned to him and I said, Kenny, Kenny, I love you, man. <laughs> and he just, he never looked at me, he just kept looking at the desert and said, I kind of like you too, buddy. <laughs> How can you not write a book? Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I think we, let's, we have a few questions that came in. Okay. And we'll do just, we'll do, I think we just have a couple of questions, and then I want to come back up here and finish the conversation. Okay. Um, let, me, uh, let me just, uh, this is another, I think this is actually what you're, what you're getting at right there. You have this experience, you've said, that at the same time people want to strengthen barriers, we seem to want to supersede them. And this makes us a little crazy. You said we'd like to be able to speak to each other. We miss each other. Don't you think? I do think, but there's something about somebody like you writing it down that way, and I read it. <laughs> and I know it's true. I, I do think it's true. And I think, you know, I, uh, you know, the border to me is just, a, it's a metaphor. All we have to do is look around us. The border's everywhere. Look at the world we're in. Muslim ban. Black and white. Black lives matter. Gay. Bi. Trans. Immigrants. North and South, Christian and not, anywhere you want to go, there are these weird fences. And I can look in any audience and see fences. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we miss each other. 
And yeah, I've tried to train myself to be able to listen and not just react automatically. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that's... And that, that goes back maybe to my theological mania, too, that I just think that there's a great loneliness. You, you also have observed somewhere that I think you said something like, ha having the life you've had, you think that each and every one of us is at least bicultural. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Um, I think you're all Mexicans, but I know you're not. <laughs> I just, you know, it's the default. I don't, and uh, I, I, I think about this thing a lot. There's a great Mexican-American novelist named Rudolfo Anaya. A lot of people don't know him, but he wrote a, a kind of a classic novel called Bless Me Ultima, which was, when I was growing up, the book about Mexican healer women. And I owe a lot to that book for figuring out how to do Hummingbird's Daughter. But when I was a kid, he told me this amazing thing. He said, if you, in your writing, can make your Tijuana grandmother the grandmother of a reader in Iowa or Nebraska, he said, you have committed the strongest religious and political act in the world. And I've always kept that as one of my prime writing rules. Um, and that's, that's what I'm thinking about, that we can, if, if we can talk to each other without agendas, I'm not trying to convert anybody, I'm just telling you how I feel. I think people will listen. Mm -hmm. The acid test is if you have to talk to kids. I have to talk to kids because the NEA all the time. And kids will shut you out like that if they sense right. any kind of a come right. on or, a, you know, I'm going to get you to vote a certain way or accept the Lord or whatever I want you to do. I just tell you my story. They know if you're telling the truth. And that, that means a lot to me. So I'm trying to be as willing to listen to people as I am to sort of blab at them. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of wisdom that can be had from both sides of the aisle yeah. if we're willing to listen to it. And I admit, most of the time I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm watching MSNBC every night saying, are you kidding me? But right. I'm still willing to listen. Yeah. Okay, let's have a couple questions. All right, we just have three questions we'll go through. Okay. Um, and by the way, this is my new quote, you can't stop art. You can't stop Thanks art. Thanks for saying that, I've quoted you. Um, how do we create empathy and love to replace fear and hatred? Ooh. <laughs> um. Well, that's, just, that's what you've been talking about. Yeah, that's my day job, man. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I just think bearing witness, you know, putting away that pointy finger and that ridiculous rhetoric, you know, and stop lying. You don't have to talk about nasty women and bad hombres all the time. We can just talk about a human being. It's really hard. Again, the danger is talking about a human being. That's dangerous. What do you mean there are really wonderful people in that religion? What do you mean there are really wonderful people that I'm going to love doing that sexuality? What about that voting? Guess what? You know, everybody has dreams. Everybody has people they love. Everybody has pain. And for me, one of the greatest things that always 
sticks with me is walking into the Tijuana garbage dump and making that my world for years. Talk about fear and loathing. I still remember one of the women in the garbage dump hugging me. There was a bunch of missionaries and she's all hugged up on me and, you know, oh, Luis, Luis, Luis. And she said, you know why I love Luis? And they're like, why? He's not afraid of us. And I was like, oh, yeah, man. She said, he doesn't care if I have lice. I was like, whoa. What? <laughs> so you got to be, I think you've got to be willing to put, you know, your life, not just your money, but your life where your mouth is. I had a little deal with God. I was like, I'll do this if I don't get lice, all right? <laughs> Which of the characters in Into the Beautiful North grew on you the most while you were writing the book? <laughs> well, most of the characters are based on real people. So Aunt Irma, it was my Aunt Irma. My Aunt Irma was Mexico's women's bowling champion. It's true. And Aunt Irma in some ways kicked this book off because she's the one who was obsessed with Yul Brynner. And she, honestly, she thought Jul Brynner was the world's best Mexican movie star. <laughs> Um, and I just want to say about my Aunt Irma that she died at 95 while bowling. Come on, that's a good way to go. Um, I'll just make this really quick. Tacho, the young gay man, is a, an homenaje, a, a, a sort of a tip of the hat to a young man from my father's hometown, Rosario, which became Tres Camarones, named Tacho. And Tacho was the only out gay kid in the 70s when I was a kid. And he stared down all the scary cowboys by being brave and fierce out in the street. And um, my family, because they thought I was a weird hippie, didn't want me to meet Tacho. They felt like if the hippie meets Tacho, something bad's gonna happen. You know? um, but I finally met him in 1980, and we became pals. Anyway, when the Spanish version came, my cousins took him the book. And then there was this long silence, and I said, what did he say? And they said, he's become insufferable, man. <laughs> he carries it around. Yeah, I told you I was special. Um, Hugo, uh, my cousin Hugo Millan was the inspiration for Atomico. Hugo Millan was Dear super macho cousin, right? Talk like this all the time. Seven years old, he talked like this. <laughs> and he was the one who decided he was gonna be Tijuana's first samurai warrior. <laughs> and Nayeli, we don't have time for it, but Nayeli was a, a girl that I knew from the Tijuana garbage dump. Um, I've known her since she was born. And I wrote the entire book she didn't have that adventure, but I wrote the entire book as uh, an homenaje to her. Um, we did a This American Life episode, you can hear it on the archives, called Trash. And um, a very short version, This American Life hosted her to a seafood dinner. She'd never eaten seafood. What an anaphylactic shock. <laughs> Was dying in my arms. And we got her to a clinic in Mexico and they refused to treat her. They said, not her, she's an Indian. 
Yeah. So the reporter had his microphone. Hmm. And he said, you're going to tell us and the listening public of all the United States and Latin America, especially Mexico, that you're going to let this child die because you're a racist? <laughs> and he's like, no. Um, so he saved her, but we had to take her back to the garbage dump. And so we were weeping, and I was holding her. And I was, it was years ago. I had a couple of books, but nothing huge. And I, I just, I promised her one day I'm going to make it and I'm going to make you the hero of a novel and then I'm going to give you some of the money. So that's how Nayeli happened and that's why the book happened. Um, this is two questions. You can answer either, both, neither. What is the hardest thing about non-Latino audiences? When presenting your work way up north, what must you do differently compared to Los Angeles, San Antonio, or even Chicago? Not a doggone thing. There's, it's absolutely wonderful. There's nothing, I mean, I, I, you know, sure in San Antonio we speak Spanish more, but other than that, no, I, people, people, these are readers. People are readers, you know, and they want to, they want to, they want to know things, or they wouldn't be reading. So no, I feel we have this phrase in Spanish, "en familia." You're in your family, everywhere I go, because people are kind. So. So. So if it's not, so if the we is not a melting pot, <laughs> what, what is it uh -oh. that we're evolving towards? Mm. I know Richard Rodriguez talk, talks about the browning of America. Oh, I hate that. You hate that. I, I kind of thought you would. So I don't think so. It doesn't have to be that. Because right? in, that, in a way, that's another way of talking about the melting pot. We'll just eventually all look alike. So well, it, it fed into a negative narrative. It sounds like some kind of stain in your laundry. Yeah. yeah. The browning of America. Okay, so, let, oh, so we'll leave him outside. Okay. So, so just pretend like I didn't mention him. No, no, that's good. <laughs> um, what are what are we evolving into? Would you what would you what would your hope be, your dream, that we're evolving into? Oh gosh, Star Trek! <laughs> we're going to have you know, we're going to have a, a culture perhaps where there's a kind of federation of planets, right? <laughs> What's wrong? What is wrong with you know, seeing a stranger? in the dark and have that stranger only raise a hand to you to wave hello and not hit you. What's wrong with that? So that to me, you know, that it's a, my family, my naming my daughter Rosario Teresa doesn't take away from your child named Biff or Sally. It doesn't, we don't have to, it doesn't harm anyone. And it seems so simple to me and enjoyable to be able to appreciate someone else's culture or music, you know, or, or, or cuisine, or even to listen about their religion and say, that's very interesting. I like that. So we evolve into just enjoying each other more. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I think it sure would. Yeah. Except maybe in sports, right? We won't. <laughs> 
We can still hate each other. Yes, oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right, this is completely self-indulgent, but when you were, you were in that, one of those pages in the, I think in the book review of the Times recently, and talking about books you like, and you said you really like hard-boiled mystery novels, and I do too. You do? And I can't, and it's hard for me to explain that. I knew I liked all, you. I knew I liked you. <laughs> but I say, one thing I say is, I, I want a world without murder, but not without murder mystery. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, so, so what is that, though? I think, <laughs> what is that that we also, as humans, as creatures, we can be against this, and yet somehow we have to grapple. Or I don't know. I don't know. What is it? It's maybe an unanswerable question. I think deep down in my heart, I wish I was Jack Reacher and could just kick open a door and shoot all the bad guys. Good maybe. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. You know, it's, just the, it's the old Whitman line of, you know, I, I contain multitudes. Yeah. There are all sorts of sides to me. And I think the, uh, that, that detective genre is fascinating for a lot of reasons. My wife is very much more literary in her tastes than sometimes I am. And we'll be lying in bed and I'm reading, you know, I'm reading the new uh, Lee Child and, or, or James Lee Burke. I can't, I'll buy any James Lee Burke on site. And she's reading some incredibly turgid thing about a yeah. melancholy Russian thinking about, I don't know what. And, I, <laughs> and she will say to me, so has the tragic alcoholic <laughs> detective met the wistful yet large-breasted woman in trouble yet? <laughs> and I take umbrage, I'm like, no. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's not that kind of book. And then at about page 110, I'll say, yeah, he just met her, yeah. <laughs> I can't, it's a formula. I think it's like watching yeah. really good TV, maybe. Yeah, right. And uh, those archetypes are fascinating because they really go back all the way to, to nights. Right. You know, as, right. as Raymond right. Chandler pointed right. out so long ago. Plus, they're just cool, man. Yeah. They're cool books. Yeah, okay. Um... This is this is a beautiful book of poetry. Thank you. The Tijuana Book of the Dead. Thank and you. Um, and actually the first poem in here is called um, You Who Seek Grace from a Distracted God. And it's way too long to read. But <laughs> um, I'm so intrigued by where it ends. And I I even wondered, you know, maybe if you would just want to read like just that very just the, this this page, but and want to know about these all these I love yous. Would you just read that and then talk to me about where okay. that goes? What's happening there? Um, well, the first line of the first poem is you who seek grace from a distracted God. And the last line of the last poem is you are not forgotten. Hence, in my mind, this is the world's longest sentence. Okay. And then it's all about God or about our yearning. And so this is a poem that was inspired by anti-immigrant rhetoric. And uh, I talk about the, the fat Pharisee on the radio spitting blood clots on the heads of these children. I'm not naming any names, but... And uh, it's a journey through the first hours of the morning of people desperately trying to get to work. And this is a, an echo of my own mornings 
taking many buses to many awful jobs. And so you're standing in the, in the uh, downtown yeah. plaza. Yeah, you can start earlier wherever you want. Yeah, I'll are. find a spot so yeah. it makes some sense. And you're, you're standing with all the people there. Um, in tedium, you walk silent, counting your manifold sins. To the plaza, stand in the crush of your family. These children heading for trade school, the wheelchair man, the woman and her shopping cart, the nodding hooker with blue tears on her cheek, paisanos y borrachos, ticos, boricuas, chicanos, apaches, taínos, habaneros, cariocas, mayas, tattooed cholo, samurai and inscrutable, leaning back, hushed as he watches you. And you want to. You really want to. You are bursting with it. You are burning with it. You who have no words want to cup their cheeks in your hands. You want to hold their faces between your palms. You want to say it. Say it. You have nothing to lose. Just say it. Say, I love you. 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 Um, Partially, it's really hard to say I love you a lot to people, I think. Certainly to an audience. Um, interestingly, it's funny you choose that because that's how they started the ballet. They made me say this to all these strangers. Really? Yeah. Um, and often, if I'm feeling really dramatic, I will gesture to each part of the audience when I do it because I want it to be sort of a pagan benediction in a way, you know? Um, <laughs> But yeah, you want to say it. We all want to say it, but we can't. And I, I deal with so many kids who can't tell their story, and they don't think anybody loves them. They think nobody cares. They think everybody hates them. They're waiting to be thrown out of the country or their mothers to vanish. Um, so part of it is talking to people who need to say it more. Hmm. Part of it is talking to myself to say, don't be a coward. Tell people you love them. And part of it is I'm often talking to 600 kids, not you adults, and I'm telling them I love you. I love you all. Because somebody's got to, you know? Hmm. You've got to. I mean, if I could have a radio show, I would just read them a story every night and tell them I love them. This has been so beautiful. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, as we finish, if you would read these lines from Nobody's Son, which is kind of a memoir, notes. I marked it up, but since you wrote it, I'm hoping you'll know what, I, you'll still be able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, is there anything else you would like to say? Just thank you. I mean, this is a bucket list event for me, speaking to you. and. This is the best place to do it, so I'm really happy. Okay. 
Yeah, okay. Words are the start again. Words are the only bread we can really share. When I say we, I mean every one of us. Everybody. All of you. Each Border Patrol agent and every trembling Mexican peering through the fence, every Klansman and each NAACP office worker, each confused mother and every disappointed dad. For I am nobody's son, but I am everyone's brother. So come here to me, walk me home.